Good morning, everybody. Oh, come on. I mean, we're going to do this until y'all get it right. Good morning, everybody. Yes, it is a beautiful morning here in West Unity. My goodness. And of course, it's shining brighter in this building because the Holy Spirit is here with us. Amen. Man, don't deny what the Spirit's trying to do in your life. Man, don't don't be religious today, okay? Let's not be religious. Let's just listen to what God has for us. I don't, I, don't need, I don't need you to sit up straight because you want to be religious. I want you to hear what the word of God says. I don't want you to just come out in your Sunday best because you feel that's what you do every Sunday. I want you to hear from Jesus today. I want you to hear from his word. And today we're going to talk about something that I need you to really focus in on. And we're going to talk about doubt for the next few weeks. And what it means when you and I have seasons, times of struggling with believing in stuff. And my friends, we, we doubt government. Sometimes we, we doubt our leaders. We doubt uh, the, the entire financial systems that we have. We doubt uh, education. We doubt sometimes whether our family or significant loved ones love us. We doubt. We have unbelief in a lot of things. But for us as Christians, people who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and I know you know this, but sometimes you and I don't want to admit it, we doubt God. We doubt His goodness. We doubt His working in our life. We doubt His protection. We doubt that He really does care for us. We doubt that he is the sum total of everything good. When things go awry in our life, we wind up even doubting God. And what a Christian does in the moments and seasons of unbelief, especially when it comes to the Savior of all kind, wow, how do we handle that? What do we do? And I know all of us have gone through moments and seasons of darkness and despair and unclarity. But has, have you ever been in that time where unclarity seems like the best way to describe it? Like you're, you're literally pulling straws when you're saying, yeah, I'm just unclear. No, you are completely and totally feeling like you're lost about stuff and you don't know where to go. And you don't know. You don't even know if God is in things. And you know that he was there before, but is he actually here now? The struggles that, that you and I have have caused us to have this, not just this damper on our spiritual life, this blinding effect that we can't even see, feel, or we sometimes feel we're not even hearing from God. And we get in his word and it's cold. And we're trying to make decisions and all of a sudden we are so fearful that the decision we make is going to be the wrong one because we haven't heard from God. And we look at our life with other believers. We look at our life when it comes to, to church life and everything is just waning and everything is just falling to the side because there is this, this chasm that seems to develop because of doubt. And sometimes there, there are three types of doubt. There is this intellectual doubt that comes because uh, we get in our own heads and we start trying to figure out the math on stuff where math is never going to work on it. And all of a sudden we think, you know, two and two is never going to equal four in this equation. And I have two and I have two, but I need 4,000. I don't know what I'm going to do. That's intellectual doubt. 
Then there's emotional doubt. And any of us that come from any ethnic background, we suffer from this a lot. Emotional doubt is when our emotions take the best of us, and because we don't, we don't feel okay, we doubt. When all of a sudden we're not happy all the time and there's this season of possible depression setting in, we start doubting everything because we don't, something doesn't feel right. And so then we doubt. But then there's this divine doubt, this doubting of divinity, and this doubt comes because of moral failure in our life. Because whenever there is something that we've done or said or did that has displeased God, when we have sinned, there does go up a, a temporary wall between us having close fellowship with our Savior. And we begin to doubt his divinity. We, we begin to doubt God because we've done something wrong. And instead of dealing with the sin in our life, we continue to say, oh, maybe God's not here anymore. Maybe God's not there. And we walk down this path. If God's not there, maybe he was never there. Therefore, I will do what I want because there's now no God in the equation. Doubt is something that needs to be dealt with. This idea of unbelief, that there is a deficiency and us recognizing what God can do. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at some biblical characters who experienced doubt. And why they had doubt and what they did throughout the doubt. And, and sometimes whether or not they were able to come up with their own biblical solutions or whether someone intervened and showed them. But what I want you to see, the, the, the big idea for today is that I want you to see that Christians, we doubt. And just like John the Baptist, who we'll talk about in Matthew chapter 11, we doubt. And it is okay to doubt. It is okay to have unbelief because we are, in, we are fallible human creatures. What's not okay is for us to stay that way and to continue down the path of not... It's not that we're going to get full understanding of everything, but that we come to a place once again of peace. So we want to get back into this idea of who Jesus is. And so the question is, what will we do with God in the midst of our doubt? So what I want you to see specifically today as we look through Matthew chapter 11 is the fact that doubt is normal. Doubt is part of our Christian journey. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how doubt is a spiritual journey, but how that journey has to be uh, moved forward on. We have to walk through it. We just can't stay at the, at the first, at, at point A. We have to get to point B. So if you join me, please, in standing and turning in, to, uh, turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to read this, just the first 15 verses here. Matthew chapter 11. The Bible says this, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. And when John had heard in prison uh, heard what Jesus was doing, he sent a message to, to his, through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind received their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And as these men were leaving, Jesus uh, spoke to the crowds with John, about John. What did, you, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? 
A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one whom about it is written, See, I am sending uh, my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered, uh, has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the, the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. Thanks for standing. You could be seated. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. So John the Baptist, I mean, he's an interesting character. In scripture, I mean, this this dude was just, this was a funky dude. I mean, he was a guy who had a vow on his life that he wasn't supposed to cut his hair, certain things he wasn't supposed to eat. You know, he, he, he was in the wilderness. He dressed with, like, animal skins. Um, you know, if you've ever seen uh, the, the YouTube series, uh, you know, The, the Chosen, uh, he's the ones that the, that the disciples called, you know, Crazy John. Because they had all these other Johns as disciples, and this is the way that they characterized John the, the Baptist. He was crazy. The guy was nuts. He was also a relative of Jesus Christ. He was his cousin. And if you know the story about John the Baptist, how he was born, John the Baptist is a little bit older than Jesus. And, and, and Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, who was well beyond the years of being able to have a baby and who had a husband, Zachariah, who was a priest, uh, they wanted a child, and God gave them a child. And this child was special. This child was so special that when, when, when the baby uh, John met the baby Jesus, both of them in the womb, the baby John started preaching in the womb. He started getting excited because Jesus was there, because Jesus had... Uh, God had given John the Baptist a very specific job. A job. John the Baptist's complete and total identity was to be to proclaim the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what his life was going to be about. He was going to come and tell people. He was what we call the forerunner to who Jesus was. And he was going to proclaim who Jesus was even before Jesus got on the scene. And there's this climactic moment where, where Jesus and John meet each other in the river. And then John actually baptizes Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes down. And he said, and, and you can hear the, and like a dove. And everyone sees this. And then the, you hear the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It's not a normal day at the river, okay? It's a, it's a really, really weird time. And everyone sees this as being the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And John starts to fade in the background as Jesus' ministry goes up. And so what you see is, on the timeline, John preparing the way, speaking a lot about Jesus. Jesus comes down, and now Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And so John continues to preach. John continues to preach not only about Jesus Christ, but he preaches about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be a child of God. And so he ruffles some feathers. John preached against the, 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 the Roman government and, and how they were against their people. He preached about the decadence that was inside Herod's family, the ones who controlled uh, the Holy Land at this point. And they got upset at John. And they got upset because Herod was taking wives from inside of his own family and doing things that were not only seductive, but also things that were uh, just uh, uh, full of incest. And so John was preaching about these things, and so they imprisoned John. And so John is in prison. John the Baptist at this time is in prison when Matthew 11 is going on. 
In Matthew chapter 10, just to set the scene of what's going up, Jesus starts to send out his disciples two by two and tells them to go out. And he tells them, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to go. Just go and preach to the, the, the Israelites the coming of the Lord. And so he began to teach them how to proclaim that Jesus Christ was coming. This was after uh, months and, and, and years of them seeing how Jesus uh, saw people healed, how, how he was truly the Messiah. And so they go out and they preach. So as all of this is happening, as they are sent out to preach... As they are sent out, the word of the Lord is, is, is growing in, in, in the Middle East. It's growing in the Holy Land. And then we get to Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, we hear that rumblings come back to John the Baptist in prison about the proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus. So think about this for a second. Your entire life, you've been spend, you spent go out going out talking about someone who hasn't, become, hasn't gone public with who he is yet. Your cousin, Jesus Christ, goes public with who he is, the fact that he is the Messiah, and you continue to preach. And you think, you know, at this point you may have gotten a complex, like you're the only one preaching, or how is this message going to get to everybody if it's just me and a few others? Then he starts to hear that by through these 12 disciples that people are being healed, people are being saved, things are happening. And so the rumblings come back to him, and so he hears about this public proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. So if it's you, and you hear the message going forward, and you're locked in prison, and you know that your life will ultimately probably be given up because of the message you've been proclaiming, what are some thoughts that you have about those who are going out and preaching this message. Now, first and foremost, we probably all, if we have any kind of spirituality to us, would be excited about this. The message is going out. The name of Jesus is going out forward. But every day as you're getting excited and hearing more about people who are not locked up in chains doing what you know your life is supposed to do, there may come about that you start to... to have some feelings that may be negative towards those preaching, definitely negative those, those, uh, towards those who have encaptured you, but you may even have some negative thoughts towards God. Why am I locked up here and they're out there when we're all doing the same message? Have you ever gotten to that point in your life where you wonder why everyone else seems to be being blessed and you're not? That, yeah, we're all, we're all supposed to be doing the same thing. I'm trying my best in my spiritual life. But why does Sister So-and-so have so much victory and I don't have it yet? Why do they get opportunities to speak at their job and I can't say anything in my job? Why do her kids look better than my kids? Why does, why does their marriage look like the perfect thing and mine's, and mine's falling apart? Why, 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 why? And then we start to doubt God. We get mad at our current situation we forget the sovereignty of God, and then we start to question God. And the thing I want you to see about John the Baptist is that he questions something that's at the very core of what he was supposed to be doing. So I want us to look at Matthew chapter 11, and I want you to think about a couple of things. The first thing is that John the Baptist you know, goes through struggles. We go through seasons of doubt. And, you know, when we look at... Um, John, you got to remember, he's the one that baptized Jesus. But John sat, sits arrested 
and he's in jail for just proclaiming the truth. And so this is what he asked him. So in, in chapter 11, it says, Now when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent, them, he sent the message through his disciples. So what was Christ doing? Christ sent out his disciples to preach. Christ continues to preach in the cities where the disciples come from. So the message is going out. John's work is continuing, right? But in John's eyes, he wants to ask a question. And so verse 3, he asked this question and asked him. So he's sending a message to Jesus through his disciples. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? All right, so I want you to bring this, let, let's break this down for a little bit. He sends his disciples back to Jesus, finds out where Jesus is preaching, and the question John has for him, are you really the one who is supposed to come? Now, now, basic, hey, I gave my life to do this. Are you legit? Doubt clouded a few things, and I want you to see it, and you may not see it right away. Again, who is John the Baptist to Jesus? His cousin. Their family. Who, what has John seen in the life of Jesus? The father himself saying, this is my beloved son, who I'm well pleased. He sees the Holy Spirit as a dove come down. All in this beautiful picture of the Trinity. All working together. Confirming that what Jesus' mission is. John has seen all of this. Again, this is his cousin. And he goes, hey, you real? Was this real? Is this really going to happen? Is this, I mean, like, honestly, I, I'm giving my whole life. I hear this message going. Are you the one? Or are we still waiting for someone? This, this time of solitude, this time of, of contemplation, this time of, of going through trauma has caused John to doubt what God has already declared to be doing. You see, the thing is, when we doubt God... We forget that God has already, de already declared in the Bible what he is doing and what he is going to do and what he continues to do. And so John, knowing full well what the father said, goes, hey, are you the one? Are we still waiting for someone else? And I, even in that sentence, I want you to see that even in the, the doubt that John has, he hasn't given up the mission. Because he says, hey, if you're not the one, is somebody else coming? How hard is this going to get? Sometimes doubt, we're looking down the path. How, how doubtful, how hard, how deep is this doubt journey going to go? Are, are we gonna, do we have to wait for someone else? I, I'm doubting now, but God, are you going to be silent for much longer? Will I have to be in this torment even further? Should we expect someone else? Are we still waiting? Do I have to stay in this state of not knowing whether or not you are doing what you said that you were going to do? Man, doubt plays with your mind, doesn't it? It doubts everything. It, it, it begins to help you or, or, or allow you to have this ejection of declared and stated belief to you now get to this place where you don't trust the very things that you held dear. 
His whole life was to this mission, and now he's questioning whether this was actually the person that he was supposed to devote his entire life to. I don't know what, what you've gone through in your Christian journey, but in my, in my Christian journey, I, 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 can re, I can recall several times where, I've gotten to the, where I got into the place that I, I didn't realize who God was. I remember uh, as a teenager growing up and, um, you know, getting saved right before my senior year of high school and going to Bible college and seeing all the, you know, learning a lot of stuff about the Bible and learning what it, what it truly meant to live a holy, separated life and realizing that my life was not adding up to that. Man, I doubted my salvation throughout college. Even as a youth pastor, I would go through struggles of, of doubt and depression, wondering whether that, that prayer I meant was how could I still have these, these urges or these tendencies or these thoughts and, or, and, and still, still be a Christian. You ever felt that way? That, that you know, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I really didn't come to know Jesus because I'm looking at that guy's life and he's way more holier than I am. And I don't understand how, 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 could, God, how could God save somebody like me? Did I pray hard enough? Did I say the right things? Did I, did I quote the Romans road enough? And it's, doubt takes you down paths that are dark and gloomy, but those paths don't end because doubt just compiles onto more doubt about other things. If I'm not saved, then maybe anybody, can anybody get saved? Is the word of God real? Is God, and then you, go, you keep going down these paths because doubt has a lot to do with the blindness that comes when we don't add things to our faith to help compensate when doubt starts creeping in. And so I remember one time I was talking to my wife and I'm, and I'm you know, a, a tremendous season of, of doubt and, and desperation. And, and I remember as a grown man with kids curled up in bed just weeping, wondering if it was real. Have you been there? Doubt stinks. Not being able to have confidence that your savior still loves you is a place I hope you never have to get there but if you get there I hope you understand how God wants to pull you out of that because I'm thinking about John I don't hold a candlestick to John the Baptist and this guy's like hey are you even the one that we're supposed to wait for is it you have you, have you gotten to that place? And maybe some of us need to get into that season. Maybe, maybe God has to allow these, these thoughts of unbelief to get in so you really are able to see the question answered, are you the one? Because if we haven't gotten that settled yet, whether Jesus is the one, there, there is no, there's no moving forward in your life yet until you recognize who he actually is. So Jesus' answer to John is of tremendous importance, but I want you to see the simplicity of what, of what Jesus says. And I want you to notice first and foremost what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't tell the disciples to go back to John and say, you're done. How could you? 
Are you serious? You don't believe me? Come on, man. He doesn't reject John because of his doubt. The Savior doesn't reject his followers because of unbelief. The Savior comforts. And he uses his spirit and shows you his word to bring you back to himself. God doesn't use tricks. God doesn't use mind games. God doesn't use what Satan does. Jesus comes to you through the power of the spirit and the word and says, this is who I am. He doesn't mock you for your unbelief. He doesn't chide you for not having enough faith or having enough intellect or emotional stability to get it. He just says, here's who I am. And this is how he replies to him. Go and report to John what you hear and see. You see, it's interesting how in the sovereignty of God, a chapter earlier, Jesus has sent his disciples out to proclaim the gospel, to have this word go forth. And then Jesus also goes out and proclaims the gospel. So by the time John asks his question of doubt, Jesus says, show John what's been happening since he's been locked up. Bring John back to the very things that he's heard about and has translated into doubt as to whether or not to believe in Jesus. He says the very things that cause you are the very things that should cause you to have faith. You see, he had to refocus what John was looking at. John was looking at the fact that he's in prison, everyone's out there. It was his life even worth it? And he says, no, no, go back to John and have him recalibrate on what's actually going on. Because what doubt does, doubt doesn't remove us from reality. Even though in our head it might be, things are still happening and God is still moving. We're just not seeing it with a spiritual eye because of this unbelief. And so the cure for this unbelief is for Jesus to bring us back to what is actually happening. us to say, hey, that's me working. It's not so much about the disciples who are free and you're locked up in prison. I am using them just like I used you. And so he says, go tell them. The blind have received their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are told the good news. That's a lot of stuff happening. All John remembers is that disciples get to speak and I'm not. Are you really the one? Did I waste my life or was this for real? Are you really the one? And Jesus answers his question with a statement of this. I have already won. Here are the results of the victory. And he shows him there are people who were blind that now see. And this is now happening on an exponential level because the disciples are seeing it happen too. The lame are walking. Those with leprosy. The, the dead are being raised again. He's saying, John, let me, let me recalibrate your focus on the 
crazy things that are happening right now. And the word of God is being proclaimed. And then he brings this to him. He says, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And so this, this phrase by Jesus has a connotation for a general purpose. Blessed is anyone who isn't offended by Jesus, right? But specifically for John the Baptist, continue to persevere. Because those who are not offended, those who don't blaspheme, those who don't turn away, show what their truth faith always was. And one of the blessings that you and I have as a believer is that we have the ability to persevere. We have the ability to remain consistent even in seasons of doubt, even in seasons of unbelief. You and I have the grace to continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even in the midst of everything going south. And that is what he's beginning to, to share with him. So continue. Blessed are those who aren't offended by me. And John never said he was offended. John never said that, you know, uh, John just through what he said and through the fact that Jesus Christ knows all of our thoughts and all of our actions, he tells John, don't be offended. John, don't. Th this is what it's supposed to be. And so this is the, the that's the first half of our, of our portion of scripture. That Jesus wants us, desires us to seek him when we're doubting. When we have these moments and seasons of unbelief, we, 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 we shouldn't recoil. We shouldn't, um, you know, go into seclusion by ourselves. That, that makes it worse. But we have to go back to Jesus. And, and for some of us, that's kind of hard because if you ask the question, just, just, just play, that, play my statement through. Well, if I'm doubting God, why would I go back to him? If I'm doubting God, why would I do that? And this is why I'm telling you, don't stay in, in seclusion. Because the moment when you and I start doubting our Savior is the very moment that we need our brothers and sisters more than ever before. If you're trying to live your Christian life on your own, especially through, through, through negative seasons, and you're not reaching out to your brothers and sisters, you're not going to make it. You're either going to fall back into yourself or you're going to fall into a lie that someone else is. You're going to fall into something that someone's going to tell you that they, they're going to tell you it makes it feel better, and you're going to wind up in even a worse spot. So when we have these moments, and this is why John with his disciples, which means his disciples knew what he was going to ask as well, by the way. So John even had an inner circle that knew that he was doubting. And the disciples went to Jesus. John's doubting. <laughs> so people knew. And Jesus tells the people that, that know, hey, go back and tell him, here's what's happening. And so we have to learn to invite Jesus into our moments of doubt and unbelief. You know, the title of our series is Help my unbelief. And that's actually a quotation not only from a famous hymn, but also from a portion of scriptures where the hymn stole it from, right? And so in, in scripture, there is, uh, there is a disciple of Jesus who also works for the, 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 Roman, the Roman government who wants his child to be healed. And, and Jesus asks him, do you believe? And, and, and the man says, yes, but help my unbelief. And in that, in that very, very 
honest and raw statement, what that person was telling Jesus was this. I, on my human end, am doing everything I can to recognize how awesome and great you are, God. But there are things that I am sinful and I doubt. And there are parts of me that, that does not believe. I need to turn those things over to you as well now. And that's what it means to go from uh, having this, this, this plaguing doubt to start allowing Jesus in. It's, it's to start handing things over like everything is. Just like we hand over our, our medical results to the Lord. Just the way we hand over our, our, our bills to the Lord. Just the way we hand over our children and our spouse and our church to the Lord. Just as we do all of those things, we have to start handing over our doubt to Jesus too. And saying, hey, these are areas. It's not hard for me to come to church. It's not hard for me to pray. But, but to trust you with this, I'm having a hard time. And we hand it over to him. This idea of handing things over. And you know what? Here's the thing. It's okay to hand things over piecemeal to Jesus. You're not a failure if you can't handle everything over right away. But you are if you pick and choose what you're going to and what you're not. But as you struggle, as you say, Lord, help with this, help my unbelief with this, this surrender of your doubt and your unbelief to Jesus is what causes us to grow. And so Jesus tells John, these are all the things that you preached about. These are all the things that you proclaimed. These are all the things that you claimed evidence of. And now it is being fulfilled. And so he brings it back. This is what God is doing. We have to hand our unbelief. We have to give it over to Jesus. And so the second half, verse 7 says, And these men, as these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. So I want you to just think about the fact that there, is no, there are no automobiles at this time, right? There's no teleportation. There still isn't, right? And these guys, he says, as they're beginning to walk away, so as they're walking away and there's a crowd there, these guys can still hear what Jesus is saying. And so what Jesus is about to say is not only a message for the disciples of John as they go back to John, but also as, as a testimony to those who are standing there. And here's what he says. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Now, he's talking about, what, see, remember, John was in the wilderness, right? John, and, and the wilderness just means outside of town, right? There may, there, may, there may be some land that hasn't been cleared yet. This is where John lived. Outside of every town, there was just these areas of wilderness, and, and this is where you would go and, and, and maybe fish or do, do different things. This is where you would uh, wash clothes, and then you would go back into town. The well was also outside of town. John spent a lot of time outside of town. Every time John went into town, it was trouble. Because he just wasn't, he wasn't a townie, you know, he was an outside type of person. Not somebody who used to, likes to live in the rural parts. This is somebody that, you know, I mean, you would probably, would probably call him like a drifter. I mean, that's, that's, he lived like that, like a, like a hermit. And so when people would go out to hear John, that was the crazy thing about John. It wasn't as if he was saying, come, people would go out and find him because of this message that he was proclaiming. These crowds would go out. And so Jesus is asking, why did you ever go out to the wilderness? Was it to see some reeds swaying in the wind? You can see that anytime, right? He says, hey, why did you go out to the wilderness? To see a man dressed in soft clothes? No, because John wore animal skins. 
Did you go? He says, the people who wear soft clothes are in the palaces. He goes, so why did you go out to the wilderness then? He keeps asking the same question. Why did you go out to where John was? And they said, why? Because he was a prophet? And he goes, yeah, he was a prophet. Because in those times when somebody would proclaim something that seemed like a new message or a deep message, and because of the years of silence where God didn't speak, they would, they would go out when somebody would proclaim something, especially because they heard something that sounded like a prophet of the Old Testament and that they were speaking things that seemed to be true. A crowd would go and they would tell other people, hey, there's a prophet, there's a prophet, a prophet speaking. So they would go out to the wilderness and they would listen to John. But Jesus wants to say something to this crowd. He says, this guy isn't just a prophet. And then he says something. Here's who John is. This is the one, verse 10, this is the one whom about it's written, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. And so this is actually going back to the Old Testament where the Bible proclaims who John the Baptist is because even John the Baptist was prophesied for. That someone was going to come before and talk about Jesus and they even missed this part, that the forerunner was coming. And so Jesus makes it clear that John the Baptist is a fulfillment of prophecy. And he says in verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I, one of the things I want to share just as we kind of, you know, kind of close this down a little bit for today is, is this. John's arrival prepared the way for Jesus. John's ministry prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus coming to John to be baptized prepared the way for Jesus. John continuing to preach continued to prepare the way for Jesus as he and his disciples were, 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 were gathering and continuing to do these things. And when John had a moment of doubt... The Savior didn't reject him. The Savior didn't cast him aside. The Savior didn't even silence him. The Savior commended his faith. Our seasons of doubt do not negate our journey of faith. Our moments of, dis of unbelief do not negate Everything that God is doing. John doubted and he went to his Savior and his Savior answered his question. And I'm here to share with you this morning that in moments, in seasons of doubt and despair and unbelief, our greatest refuge, our greatest solace is going back to Jesus and being courageous enough to tell him about our doubts and our fears. Because doubt is a spiritual journey, but the questions of doubt and the answers to unbelief can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ.